Hello and welcome to this podcast from the Rift Valley Institute. My name is Hannah Stogden. This is the second in a series of four podcasts commissioned by the World Bank to discuss the findings of their Somalia Urbanisation Review. Today we're going to be talking about land governance in Somalia. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to World Bank Land Administration Specialist, Paul Pretatore. He is a co-lead of the Land and Conflict Working Group and is conducting research on the relationships between land, conflict and inclusion. Prior to joining the bank, Paul was a human rights advisor and property law coordinator at the Office of the High Representative in Bosnia and Herzegovina. The review, which was published in 2021 by the World Bank, aims to facilitate a more informed dialogue between the government, private sector, civil society, development partners and other stakeholders on a more comprehensive urban development strategy in Somalia. Thanks for joining us as we delve further into the findings of that review. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Do you want to start by giving us an overview of the issues in in the review on, on land? Why is this issue important? the range of stakeholders named in in the review? We went into this exercise really focusing on on two different things. The first is that, you know, conflict has an impact on on land and and inclusion. And understanding how conflict impacts land through security of land tenure and what this means for inclusion, you know, who wins and who loses, is very important in fragile and conflict settings um, because that gives you an idea of, you know, how can you intervene to improve land governance, to either protect rights during the conflict, or how do you address all the problems that come up in a post-conflict situation? I mean, why is it important? It's about social inclusion, it's about economic assets, it's about identity, it's about participation, um, you know, using land as a source of wealth. And with governments lacking trust, it's very difficult for them to maneuver in this situation. So you've talked about how highly politicised this issue is in Somalia, as it is in other conflict-affected countries. Can you say then a bit more about those challenges in the context of urbanisation? I suppose one way of looking at it is also what's stopping stakeholders from moving forward with land reform and transitioning to a, a more streamlined approach to land governance? Conflict usually presents a lot of challenges for land governance, and Somalia is is no exception. One of the, the biggest challenges is just weak land administration, weak land governance. I mean, in, in most Somali cities, the state has not really been involved in, you know, basic services like registration and surveying and transactions. And, you know, that space has been taken up by other people, um, you know, which is usually what happens in the case. So now you have multiple players and they all have vested interests and they all have strengths and, and weaknesses. And if the government wants to stop this retreat, they have to figure out how to get back into the game um, and what that means for the other players that have taken up this space. I mean, forced displacement to cities and within cities is a continual problem because that, you know, puts a strain on lands. Uh, it clouds um, land tenure security and land rights. You know, rapid urbanization, you know, land values go up in periods of peace. Um, there's not always um, in Somali cities a lot of other areas to invest. So land is seen as a place to put money. So that's going to drive up prices and it's going to limit who can you know, participate in, in land markets. And as this 
pressure builds in urban areas, it starts to spread to peri-urban areas. From a governance perspective, it's not always clear where the boundary between urban and peri-urban is. So sometimes cities aren't sure whether they're responsible for land administration in a certain area. And conflict situations usually create opportunities for things like elite capture. So, you know, land grabbing becomes quite rife. And sorting out land governance in a conflict situation often involves tackling vested interests that have political or military or economic power behind them, which is not always easy for, for a government to do. It involves building trust. Um, you know, for example, you know, any government can expropriate lands to, you know, benefit the city, you know, maybe to create a park or build infrastructure like sanitation. But you do that in a conflict context and all of a sudden it becomes, well, you know, why are you taking it away from my group? And sorting out land governance, particularly land rights in a post-conflict situation involves making very difficult decisions. And, and one of those is establishing a legal hierarchy of rights, you know, in somewhere like um, Mogadishu, where, you know, displacement started, I think, in the 1990s. And, you know, so you have um, expatriates that, you know, want to get their land back in Mogadishu. And then the multiple waves of displacement since then, I mean, the government really has to come up with a hierarchy of who gets the land, who gets compensation and that type of thing. And that's also not very easy to do. And this is where we find, you know, interest in addressing these things kind of falling off. So you talked about the role of multiple actors, about the position of IDPs and often kind of political displacement, the price of land, even where a city is. So what is an urban area? What's a peri-urban area? So there are multiple contestations that uh, that you've mentioned. I suppose a, a lot of the research on land in Somalia then, including that carried out by the Rifani Institute, illustrates this hybrid nature of governance in Somalia not only when it comes to land, but in many sectors where there are a variety of actors involved in, in governance. I think we can look at this positively as well as something that we want to fix. I mean, what would you say about how we maximise what does work in hybrid governance? What can we learn from what does work? You know, in conflict as government retreats and or is unable to provide services, you know, this space is always filled one way or another um, for positive or, or for negative or, or usually a combination of, of the two. And in a best case scenario, what what you can do in this type of situation is just try to build on what works. Um, Post-conflict situations can provide like a huge opportunity for taking on the big issues, starting with a clean slate. All of a sudden, we're going to recognize, you know, joint registration of property or women's rights or customary tenure. We're going to formalize all of the informal settlements. But where we've seen a lot of governments trip up is where they kind of over-legislate or over over policy develop. So they come up with these great ideas, which on paper are fantastic. Um, but in practice, you know, they're really difficult to implement, you know, either because of resources or, you know, political or economic context, um, or because they just don't reflect the reality on the ground. So as a minimum, you need this kind of transition period. Um, and, and I think that the best that can be done is, is just taking time to look at what's working and why and how you build some type of safeguards into this system to make sure that vulnerable people or other people aren't somehow being excluded from the process. And this hybrid is a great thing. I mean, 
resolution of land disputes is a great example. I mean, you don't want all land disputes going to the courts. I mean, they would flood the courts. And a lot of types of, of disputes, if it's, you know, kind of a small border, the border is three meters this way versus three meters that way. Courts aren't really well designed to resolve those and there's better ways of doing it. So one place where we've seen, I think, more success with the hybrid is kind of with dispute resolution. So you can use local dispute resolution. People can sign off voluntarily on an agreement. You can go before a judge and, you know, the judge might just ask you, okay, does everybody agree? Okay, then we stamp it and, and, and we make it official. And in the inclusion of kind of customary or informal ways of land management can also be quite helpful. Right. So what you're saying is some really important points then about going with the grain uh, of, of what works, needing to reflect the reality in Somalia. And also I picked up the point you made about over legislating is a really interesting idea. But I think, you know, really what comes out from what you're saying is certainly the magnitude of these questions and the work that needs to be done and how that can be quite difficult to conceptualise. But I think what we're talking about is how important this is for underpinning any political settlement. Uh, You mentioned about when governments retreat, and that was something I was interested to ask you about as well, and how that space is filled. So what do we know about the role of the private sector in land governance? What impact does that have for state building? So obviously, there's a transition here, too, from the predominant role of the private sector in, for example, areas of state service provision to a state with more capacity. What can we say about that? And are, are there other contexts that you're aware of? You mentioned some that could be instructive for this context and, and this transition. One thing that was really interesting about the Somali context was just the multitude of players that were involved in, in land governance from the government to clan structures, to the private sector, to, to UN agencies in some ways with, with displaced persons camps. And, you know, so if you look at something like forced evictions, one of the interesting things when we looked into some of the data was about how it was mostly driven by, you know, private landlords in the private sector. They were seeing housing prices rise and they go and they evict people and they hire someone to evict them. So this is somewhere where, you know, kind of the government has to rein in private actors to say, okay, this is about protecting people's land tenure security. I think it really kind of goes back to identifying all the different players what services they're providing and what are the positives and negatives of those services and seeing if there's a way you can build some type of unified system over time that basically strengthens what's positive. Yeah, so let's let's try and think about some of the positives then because we also know that Somali cities are also sites of great opportunity if managed inclusively and, and a lot of the work you do touches on inclusion and, and the importance of that in longer term solutions. What what can you say about this in terms of land governance and administration? What are the questions we aren't asking but should be? I think one of the big questions is what are the historical drivers of poor land governance? And, you know, part of these are in institutional, part of these are related to the conflict. And, you know, that kind of has to be your starting point. And coming out of a conflict, people might be more willing to accept massive change. I mean, th- this might be an opportunity. And in fact, I mean, I, I would say, I read an interesting um, article once that was basically stating how, you know, a lot of the most progressive legislation on lands came in Africa, you know, in the 90s and the early 2000s, you know, after conflicts were ending in places like Mozambique or, or, or Congo or Sierra Leone, you know, you saw big changes. I mean, I've worked in Sierra Leone and, 
you know, in Sierra Leone, they've passed um, a national land policy that, you know, recognizes um, customary tenure, which is kind of the first formal recognition. Of course, this has to, you know, be put into legislation. Um, but there are opportunities to kind of try to do things a bit differently and, and address these historic injustices, you know, like formalization of, you know, slum areas and things like that, recogni recognition of different types of tenure. Um, and structures for, for managing that tenure, trying to include women's rights, uh, improve women's rights or rights of minorities. Um, so there might be that opportunity for Somali cities, um, you know, to, 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 to do the same. Um, also, I mean, I think it's, it provides a good opportunity for Somali governments at, at the urban level to just get back to providing basic services to citizens, you know, things like surveying and registration and registering transactions and protecting property rights and protecting against forced evictions. I mean, I think even, you know, small steps towards the state, you know, proactively and effectively delivering these services again is something that would help build trust in government, which is really important in a post-conflict situation. So for sure, there is a way of looking at it. This is an opportunity. But you've also outlined how these pieces of work sit in very important context and vexed context of their historical drivers, but also being a highly politicised situation. And that's something that there's no shortcuts around. And you talked about the need to build trust. And that's an ongoing and long term project. And I guess it comes down to the political will to do that in many regards. So if we look at some of the recommendations then from the review around land, where the roles are outsourced, uh, for example, these hybrid systems that we've talked about, and the position of marginalised and vulnerable groups and how to bring them into the conversation, where do we go from here and, and, and who and what needs to be part of that discussion, would you say? Well, I mean, I think everybody has to be part of, of that discussion because land is one of those things that just one way or another affects everybody, either as an individual land holder, you know, someone who's renting, someone who owns land, someone's using it for, for agriculture or, or for business or someone that as an urban resident should be benefiting from things like parks or green space or, you know, flood zones or, or, or things like that. So, I mean, the circle of people involved in the consultations always needs to be wider than you think um, it does. Um, so, I mean, that would kind of be the starting point. And one of the things that I've I've noticed seems to be a bit lacking um, in the Somali context is a clear land policy, you know, either at the state or even at, you know, the urban level is that I haven't seen a lot of elaboration of how they want to use land for the benefit of Somali uh, cities and, Som and Somali urban residents. And, and absent that, I think it's a little bit difficult um, for the government to set a clear strategy about how they want to want to go about these things. And, you know, that's one of the biggest recommendations we have is, is just to have some strategic policy vision of, you know, what they want land to be in Somali cities. And, you know, and then it's, it's really important for them to address some of the, the big risks that we've already identified, you know, like, like the lands grabbing um, by, by elites or, or, or militaries or militant groups or, or whatever, um, you know, adding some element of transparency and accountability to the land administration system. I mean, who owns what and how are decisions being made, developing land and housing solutions for IDPs. Um, I know that there's, that there's always an, somewhat of an assumption that IDPs are going to go back to rural areas. Every country I've worked in that 
had kind of that big rural to urban migration forced displacement because of conflict, um, people tend not to go back from urban areas, at least not in large numbers. And that's a reality that needs to be dealt with. So coming up with some practical solutions around housing or allocation of land while at the same time protecting people from abuses like forced evictions is, is really important. You know, then I think, you know, one of the things that tends to get lost, particularly when we're in a in an audience of land administration is just the security situation. And, you know, the security situation is, you know, one, one of the biggest factors in people's decisions about whether to go back, where to live, what to do with their land. And, and sometimes we kind of um, neglect um, that factor and we need to keep that in mind. That's so helpful and such an important reminder about the impact of insecurity. Really many things to ruminate over there, but thank you so much, Paul, for joining us today to talk about land governance in Somalia. Thank you. It was a pleasure to speak with you. And I I just want to add that uh, the, the work done by the local researchers for Rift Valley Institute was really some of the best research I've, I've seen in, in my career. So without that, it would have been impossible for us to write anything that had any value. So huge congratulations to, to, to you and your researchers. Oh, that's, that's great to hear. I'll pass that on. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Anna. Thanks for listening. This is the second of four episodes exploring the World Bank Somalia Urbanisation Review. This podcast was made possible by the World Bank in collaboration with the Rift Valley Institute. It was produced by Ida Holly Nambi and Mae Francis. Please leave a comment, a rating or a review, and please do join us again next time. Thank you.